We at Time to Rebuild would like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. At the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria, and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community. I was the command, you know, state commander, controller for Burke Street after, straight after it happened. I think I did a 12-hour shift or something in the control room. But if I, I'm happy to be honest here with the world, is that it, about 45 minutes, or maybe 90 minutes in, so you can imagine a big police control room. You know, there's all sorts of people, there's chief commissioners and premiers and all sorts of people asking questions coming through and you're, in, you're trying to be in charge and you get everything set up. And at one stage there, I actually just stopped. I physically forced myself to stop and stand still and breathe for two minutes just to, re- just to get myself and get my head right. And it was all happening around me. I got everything moving and everything was happening, you know, the, all the resources were coming and the national, the state responses and then requests from national how they could help and because, you know, ambulance was here and everything else was running. But um, to cope, I suppose you ask, how do you cope? Well, I've, I got to the point where I learnt to actually, occasionally you just have to stop. And I stopped and breathed, you know, it took two minutes to myself, had a breath and physically focused on lowering my pulse rate. You ask me the questions and I'll talk. I think you've been yelled at a few times, mate. That's a really good point that you make because we're, this is what this podcast is about, is giving out little sight. You're, you're going you're gonna to do things that are compromised, maybe the values and morals that you were brought up with, or maybe they fall right in line with the values and morals that I was brought up having. Um, my focus is just focusing on what I'm going to do when I get out. And all the stuff that you mightn't have thought of mm. that goes on in the prison. Yeah, like how many alarms get set off when you walk in with me, Cronin. Mac Wilson. Mick Cronin. Good to be back. No, it's good. Get straight back into it. It's great. And look, um, really excited about um, our guest today. And we're, we, as we've done previously, Mark, we've, you know, spoke a lot to the young people, a lot of people that are in custodial. We've talked to a lot of the people that are doing programs and services. But we thought today that we would um, go, go to the other side a little bit and, and get a different um, perspective and reflection on, you know, how we can do things better. Today, we have Stephen Lane. Stephen currently is the Road Safety uh, Camera Commissioner and Deputy President of the Police Registration and Services Board. Uh, he was appointed to ESTA, Emergency Services Telecommunication Authority, or Triple O Emergency, and board three years commencing in September 2020. In October of 2021, Stephen stepped in as the interim CEO of ESTA uh, in order to guide the organisation through a difficult time with call delays to the Triple O service in Victoria. Stephen was a sworn member of Victorian Police for 40 years before retiring in December 2019. During his career in policing, Stephen worked in many frontline operation roles as well as corporate support areas. He retired from Victoria Police as, assistant, as an assistant commissioner, a rank he held for more than six years. He held several command roles, including professional standards, road policing, with much of his time spent as the regional commander for the Northwest Metro region. 
Stephen holds a Bachelor of Laws, Graduate Diploma of Legal Practices, and a Master of Education. He's a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and is also, as I said before, a member of the ESTE Financial Committee. Stephen, welcome to Time to Rebuild. Yeah, thanks. for. It's nice to be here. Sounds like um, I'm glad you said 40 years, so I'm tired listening to all those things. I don't know where I've got the time to fit them all in. <laughs> well, it's a, it, it's a, yeah, it's a, you know, a lot you've got in there, so I'm really looking forward to unpacking a little bit of this today. So I suppose what would be really good for us, um, Stephen, and our listeners would be just to, you know, um, be interested to take it back to, you know, when you decided or when you decided, yeah, maybe when you decided to, to go in that path towards police um, and yeah, a little bit of background where you came, like where you grew up and so forth as well and what led you to uh, to getting into the police force and then we can probably take it from there to the 40 years. Yeah, not a problem. Um, well, I suppose if you, if we, particularly because this is about young people and families and where you come from. So I'm one of, uh, I was one of eight kids, so good Irish Catholic family based in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne. Um, sadly, uh, dad passed away when I was about seven, um, left mum with seven of us still at home. So it was a busy house. Um, like we were lucky. Dad was a, a hard worker and a bricklayer and built our own house. So unlike a lot of the kids that, uh, you know, your listeners are working with and the kids that are listening, um, we had secure housing security, which is really, which is really critical today for, for families. Um, but in the 1970s, when I was in high school, I was one of the younger ones of the family. But in the 1970s, the world was different as far as how you got a job. Um, there used to be a thing called the public service exam. So um, people used to be able to just go and do an exam and they'd end up in what was, you know, they'd end up in the Board of Works that used to work after water or the SEC when we owned electricity. And so we had all these state-owned you know, organisations. So there was a pathway there. Um, a lot of people, you know, the military um, from where I went to school, good, you know, a boys' school, went into that. Um, apprenticeships was was the, really the flavour of the day. Sort of a third of young men probably went into apprenticeships and did trades, um, and the police force was one of those. So you sort of floated towards, you know, probably half of the of the year twelves went to university in those days, which is, you know, we're trying to get more and more kids into into uni. Uh, but in the nineteen seventies, it was wasn't as many as is going now. It wasn't accepted that you needed to do that in order to progress in your life. Um, so policing came. One of my best mates was interested. He sat the exam, and I thought, oh, that was pretty good. I had a cousin was uh, a police officer. He was uh, he's probably about ten years older than me. And I, I, you know, he was a bit of a villain. Actually, he used to live with my grandma down the street because he was a country kid. Um, I remember when I was about five, if we used to play up at dinner, he used to handcuff us to mum's ironing board out, <laughs> out the back room so that we would, so we'd stop making noise. So that was my first introduction to, introduction to, to the cops, I suppose. But yeah. uh, he was a wonderful fella and um, a big influence on, you know, doing the right thing and doing those sort of things. So, yeah, I went along, just decided I'd, I'd probably give it a go. I always had a sort of a five-year plan. I'll do it and see how it works out. So, as you said... Um, went and did a few things, it leads on to different jobs and all of a sudden you turn around and find yourself you've done 40 years and and you manage to be uh, in charge of a whole bunch of other police who are doing really cool things, um, helping out community. And that's a, it's incredible, like, yeah, as you say, you, you go from that and then, yeah, 40 years later you're looking back on it going, whoa, you know what I mean? Um, back then was it was... You know, policing. When you went to go into the police force, was it a was it a difficult task to get in? And was it seen back then really as a, you know, a, a very honourable job and a great profession to get into? Or was you know, because I would love to see that now and then maybe reflect a little bit what it would be like now today. 
I think in those days when I just sort of described it, there was a, there was a lot of uh, I think from families sort of my where I grew up in the type of people that I grew up with, having some sort of job security was really important. Which I say that you know the public service. So people used to get a job for life. Yeah. You know. They, yeah. You know, we talk about uh, young people now. Even if they go to uni, they may do two or three different courses that are completely different from the one that they started and end yes. up with 12 or 15 careers before they get to the end of 40 years of work life. So life was different then. So so there was a lot of job security about policing. It was considered a, it was considered a good thing to do. Um, but certainly it was really positive from, um, from what I did. It, was, you know, it, it still came with, uh, you know, dis- you know, some disadvantages in the other young, in the other kids I went to school with went off and did other things. Some of them, you know, might have knocked off cars in the middle of the night and did stuff like that and got caught. And um, drugs were still around, so you had to stay away from drugs if you're in the police force. Drink and driving was just starting to be an issue, and it's hard to believe now. Probably um, the age group and many of the people listening can't, couldn't believe that people used to drink and drive, and there wasn't you wouldn't get pulled up and given a breast test. So. It was a different world. We didn't have mobile phones. We didn't. Nobody had a like. So the, there was no such thing as a video recorder in people's back pockets. Um, most pubs shut at ten o'clock, pretty much. Um, so that, it was a different world, um, you know, in the no, early nineteen eighties. So. so what you were saying is a pretty handy gig back then, was it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, some of it. I, I suppose for some of my mates, some of my mates in police force used to call it a, you know, a great adventure. You know, they, yeah. Uh, you're very young. I joined when I was eighteen, and you're able to do that then. Uh, they give you the keys to a really fast car. They give you lights and sirens so you could go quick and you we chase, you know, we'd have police pursuits and pl- cars would crash and all sorts of things would happen. So stuff that doesn't happen now, uh, there's a lot There's a lot of safety, which is good. You know, I lost a lot of colleagues over the years in policing that were killed in, in police pursuits and car crashes and, you know, it wasn't a cool thing, so... Um, but when you're in your early twenties, like some of your listeners, if they if you get to your early twenties, there's still that sense of adventure when you're a young man. Um, so, uh, so for me, I suppose I still grew up in I was still growing up in policing, and yeah, um, part of it was part of it was like a boy's own adventure. You know, what are we going to do now? And you know, you work a night shift and everybody's asleep, and you're doing all sorts of you know things like that. And every now and then, you'd have a bit of fun, um, and you had to have a bit of fun because on the other side, you know, you're dealing with uh, issues that other people didn't see, which I, and I think is policing. That's the important, I've talked to young police, I think that's the really important thing that they do is that for 99% of the community, they just want go to go to work, come home, raise a family, have a partner, you know, have a good life, go to bed, feel safe, get up the next morning like nothing happened. The job of police is to, is if the less police are visible to all those people, the better. Yeah. Because it happens in the background, and it means that you've been good at your job, and and life's safe, and the community's safe, and we all move on. Policing back then, you know, through them decades, how difficult is it now? Do you feel the the the, the layers of it to it now, and what you have to face? How significantly different is it gone through them years? And was there kind of a point where you know it really shifted, where you know it became a job that. You know, was really challenging, really hard, and 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 at times quite dangerous and quite ch- and quite hard to do because crime was rising. So I think that I think that for me the naivety stopped in the late eighties. It was probably eighty five onwards. Um, the naivety of policing stopped, and for a couple of reasons. Um, 
Uh, crime changed a bit, uh, like heavy gang crime who were doing armed robberies, things like that, were shooting police. So I don't need to go in that space, but people probably recall um, we had some incidents where we had um, police, police murdered on the job. Um, we had the Russell Street bombing and, and Angela Taylor, who was actually a close friend of mine, died at Russell Street. Um, and then we also had those issues, you know, we were driving too fast, we were having chases, we were um, starting to have a bit of an arms race with, uh, you know, we were shooting people um, more than we should have. We weren't thinking about our own safety. So it was, you know, too many cops were sort of like Wyatt Earp walking into town deciding that they'd stop things here and then. So the late 80s, I think, culturally and police really shifted, really, really shifted. So the safety of police, you know, don't rush in, um, use proper techniques. They trained us in a whole lot of things at the time. Being young cops, we thought we were just junk, but they actually kept people alive and they made you safe and they also made sure that the person that you were trying to deal with was safe as well. You know, we're dealing with mentally ill people and we only had one response and that was a firearm or a, and a pair of handcuffs and a baton and that was it. Um, so things things had to shift. So I, th I think from that perspective, it was from the late 80s onwards, the world changed. And obviously as soon as... And, and the layers got, got more complex for police about accountability. But um, as soon as, uh, you know, like I said, the mobile phone, as soon as the, you have to assume now everybody's videotaping everything you do. Yeah. Um, every, we're all, I'm presuming you're all audio taping what I'm doing today. So <laughs> Be careful what you say. There's, yeah. a rule, there's a rule with senior police <laughs> is if there's a microphone, you assume it's on. You know, yeah. yeah. Don't assume it's not. But for police out in the street now, people have, you know, there's CCTV cameras in people's houses, in shops, everywhere. We've got uh, police with nowadays, the police wear their own um, um, video recording equipment. There's video recording, recording equipment in their cars and everybody they deal with has got a mobile phone and quite often they just pull it out and start recording as soon as they get pulled up for a traffic ticket. So the world's really, you know, from the boys' own adventure of the 19, early 1980s when I was a young man you know, driving around when pubs were still shut and only people out were villains or, you know, drunks driving that shouldn't be driving on the road, you were trying to get off the road, to today, it's a really, it's a really complex environment. So picking their way through it is, is really hard and trying to start a career, um, I think, I really, I, I, it's amazing, I'm amazed by how quickly they can become professional in that environment. When I reflect, if I, you know, it's a different world. It was three decades later, maybe in the, you know, in the mm. last decade. But I wonder how well I would have gone with it. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. So where were you first stationed uh, when you started off? So we moved around when when we came when I came in through the early eighties. They moved you around for a little while, and then my first permanent station was at Collingwood Police Station. I okay. spent three years there. Um, was a great place. Uh, little little place out the back of that. Collingwood Town Hall, it's still there. It's yes. still really yeah, hard yeah. to find. Uh, there used to be a court next door. So in those days too, man, we, the magistrates' courts were local. So we'd have the police station was there. We had our own court. Uh, the justice of the peace still sat on the magistrates' court. So they were local people. Three justices used to sit at the court upstairs in the number two court. Um, so we had a, you know, and we were in a network of stations. So our little network joined up. Uh, wasn't, it wasn't a division, I think they called it something else then. So it was Collingwood. Uh, Richmond and Fitzroy, we were pretty much the three stations together worked closely together. So you got to know everybody and every night there'd be a night shift van from each of the three stations and you were the only ones on you were the only ones there. So yep. you had to help each other out and know what each other was doing and, and do stuff like that. So it was a it was a great learning place. Mm. 
And did you find that, um, just trying to like see, was there a sense of community as well back then? Like, you know, you kind of knew the people that were causing trouble. Oh, um, then, yeah, easily. No. Uh, I mean, in you know, we're at the, I don't know if people know, but we're at what well, they call it Icon Park, which Icon is the Park, Carlton yeah. footy ground. So Collingwood still, we're still playing football at Victoria Park. That was in Collingwood Police Station's patch. So yeah. there'd be a football game at Collingwood, at Vic Park on, the, on a Saturday afternoon and we'd be responsible for policing it. So that was, you know, we had our own police station and our own footy club. So how good was that? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was just trying to make your point. You got to know who was yeah. in the zoo and where they were and, um, and you know, often um, some of our our keener people who are going in, in to be detectives, you know, more senior to me, that they'd see someone in the crowd from one of the locals. They actually was on a warrant. So. <laughs> yeah, into the crowd. <laughs> so if you get, I just want to demonstrate. Did you know people? We got to the there were every 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 Collingwood football game. There was somebody who was wanted, um, <laughs> as well as doing the public order stuff. There'd be somebody that we're trying to make sure that we get as soon as they're out the back of the stand, we want to grab them and yeah, um, yeah. and and pull them away. So that, so it, it was like. Local. It was uh, yeah. Just making it clear, it's just Collingwood that just, was. <laughs> every every other football club was no yeah, no offended. Sure didn't have the cap. Really playing into the Collingwood stereotype. You went straight in there. <laughs> it's um, fascinating though, and you think about um, just going back a little bit. Resources like you know today, what you need now, mm. you know to 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 because if you look at the. What you mentioned, we made a really good point. You look at the everyone's can film on the phone. Like I'm sure it's a it's a helping sometimes to solve stuff, and it's a hindrance sometimes when you're trying to walk through stuff for police. Um, but I'm also key, I'm also interested as well in in resources that are needed now compared to back then. Like you just look at again, we talk layers. Um, it must be really difficult these days to to to. It, it, oh, sorry, should I refrain? I refrain that. Is it difficult these days? to get more people to, into the police force and to have the resources you need to, you know, um, tackle the crime that's that's happening these days at the levels it's happening? Uh, I, I, I don't know if it's difficult. There's still a lot of people who are applying. Um, so, you know, my, I'm two years old, so I'm not speaking on behalf of Victoria Police anymore. But Victoria Police, before I left, went through a massive recruitment phase. Mm. So government bought a lot of new cops and put them in. So And PSOs, we all know about train stations. I think the difficulty is probably um, trying to get uh, a diverse community into policing. Yeah. Um, you know, as I've already described myself on the side, you know, Irish Catholic family, so obviously I was a middle-aged, white, grey-haired man. That's who I am. Um, and and I reflected, when I joined policing, I reflected the group that joined. So uh, more and more diverse now, but trying to get diversity, I think, is... yeah. Is is still still difficult, not not impossible. There there are you know we, we, there's a lot of success stories with um, you know African Australians who are now joining policing, so that's great. Um, and then and there's some cultural groups that don't value uh, policing as a profession because of where they grew up in the world. You know, if you grew up in a communist country or dictatorship, the you know, and that's part of the pro- hard hard part of policing is trying to get people from community to actually trust. Mm-hmm. That the police can actually help them. It's important too, isn't it? Because they can cut through a little bit. And policing, to me, is very it would be I can imagine very different in the sense that you really need to be able to the communication skills and your ability to talk and the ability to to cut through a little bit of that and 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 you know and um, deal with issues. I'm not saying that it was old school back then, but it probably I could imagine. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
you would need to have a lot more of them skills today or am I wrong in saying that it was it was always like that you always had to be able to speak to people and, and so forth and be able to that or do you think there's more of a need now because the communities are so diverse and a little bit volatile at times I think the skills are the same but I think that you have to have I think modern policing needs to understand the differences in community and be and be aware of it and respectful of it yeah you know so so some you know some cultural in some cultures you don't wear shoes inside the house so what do the police do when they turn up with their giant boots on yeah you know when they when they're there because they on an, on an operation you know they have to arrest somebody then they have to wear all their gear and do that but if you're there to actually have a conversation and get the trust of um, of a mother about how you can help their son or daughter how do you be respectful and still wear your police boots so that's you know it's, it's a perverse description of it, but I and I I'd probably put it a different way too is is that you know when, when everything that you've got you know we give police now walk around you know like RoboCop you know they you know they've got if you see them they've got all these vests on and um, they're just about to get everybody getting a taser gun that they've talked about on you know so all sorts of different equipment and then there's a if you look in the legislative you know um, regime within Victoria about all the different Acts and regulations and that you need, then there's you know twenty seven different four post binders of different stuff that police could use to for powers. Um, but at the end of the day, they probably police probably only use those things for less than five percent of their time. The other ninety five percent of the time is actually just having a chat to somebody and trying to solve a problem. The actual execution of powers, you know, to actually have to arrest somebody. Is you know it, it does happen, but the the best you know you know the best way to describe it is if, if you can get someone to agree to come along and get jump in the car and come with you, they may technically be under arrest, but if, as long as it's a it's a deal between you and that person, and they're calm and they know that it's that they can they can trust that you know they've done the wrong thing and they're going to have to cop it, but they're not going to arc up and they're not going to fight and they're not going to and they think that cops a good bloke or a good girl and. Um, they're decent, then that then that's a win, and that's for police. That's every day they want to be that day. Yeah, it's a it's a great insight. Um, we see, and I suppose media, and I suppose you know programs on TV and all that plays this part in it as well. But just what you're picking up, what you said there, like that five percent, you know what I mean? Is that is is using the powers and the rest is is really you being a person? It's 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 humanity. It's chatting to someone who's trying to get them to trust you and, and to understand that yeah, it is a kind of a an arrangement, a deal that you're kind of trying to walk with them to do for a good outcome for both sides in a bad situation at yeah. times. And police and deal is policing is a deal. It's a deal between community and police. Uh, um, there was a bloke called Robert Peel who who set up policing in England, yeah. and it's a model. And he had this saying is that, you know, policing are the police and the police are community, you know, or community community are the police and the police are community. And and he had a whole bunch of uh, rules around, you know, philosophy around policing. But essentially police can't operate without the support of the community. And so if we reflect for a minute, you know, as, as we're listening, if we reflect to the America and some of those cities where the police look like they're doing a military incursion into their own cities to try and take control, like that's not policing. Mm. Mm. They've, they've lost the they've lost support of their communities. Mm. 
I mean, even some of those cities in America, they're talking about getting rid of police and replacing them with something else. They've lost so much confidence in their police, they're going to... They're going, to, they're going to move them out. So policing is, is, is only, it's not, in, it's not imposed on community. Yeah. It, it's, part, it's, it's like where I started a little while ago. It's that thing where 95% of people don't want to talk about the police, see the police or even think about the police. They might like a cop show on TV and talk about CSI and do other things, but their interaction, they don't, want, they don't need an interaction with police. They just like the idea that they're there yeah. and if they call, they like them to come. That, yeah. You know, you know, something serious happens, they want them to come. Or if their garden name's been stolen off the front porch, they want them to come too. They want them to deal with those issues because that's that feeling of safety. So That's Mac usually makes them calls. On yeah. Home, so. He's but got anyway. a collection of gnomes in his backyard. He, he has. And I'm glad we bring it up because we're going to be doing an episode on that pretty soon down the line, Stephen. So we can bring you back for that one. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, moving forward then yeah. into – this community um, and what you're speaking about, you know, about how you can be your part in the community as well. Um, you did a lot of work in the Western suburbs, um, probably at a time when there was a lot of um, focus on young Af- the African community offending. Um, I think it probably would have been back when that apex, you know, mm-hmm. that ward, the gang was, you know, when everything was splashed everywhere. And you were leading the force at that stage. You were you were in, that, in them regions and you were – Walking with these communities, how did you go? I'm really interested to know how did you go about changing the narrative in that in that area in them space with this community? Because really, everything that we were listening to and hearing was 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 doom and gloom, was hardcore, was violent. It was it was like out of control. And here you are trying to walk in that community and make a, a you know a positive impact. Yeah, and it was hard. And I suppose um, there's a lot to unpack and unpick around it. And if we think about some of the things that happened not so long ago, I mean, the, the Moomba Youth Riot, remember that? Yeah. Federation Square. And, and then we think about Parkful um, Youth Detention Centres with kids on the roof being locked in their cells for hours, you know, breaking through ceilings and yeah. doing all sorts of drama. Um, and then the Apex and other ones. So probably I'll give you a description about how probably we from the region where I was started to unpack and, un- and think through what we could do that was different. So so the Moomba stuff, we actually put uh, some excellent investigators and detectives and a whole bunch of other police in to actually find out who the kids were that would cause the trouble. So we took, so policing, and I'll say it once, and I don't, I don't think I need to go back to it afterward. Um, we've talked a lot about policing, but police do have to make people f- accountable for what they do because that's the expectation of um, community. So if you do the wrong thing, then you need to be accountable. So... Now that's the job of police. So, so we went out there after, during Moomba and we went out um, and found all these kids and um, charged the ones that we had to, identified them. It was quite difficult, you know. As I, I talked about, there's CCTV everywhere, so it took a while, but they, they were held, account, held to account. What we did with them then was what, what happens? What do, you, what do you do with those kids now that you've got them? Um, so... So we actually did a deal with the Children's Court Chief Magistrate around what we could do with them. So, so they actually dealt with them as a block. So, so we moved those kids, the ones who, you know, some of them, you know, listeners and, the, and young people are listening know that in, in a high, taste, high state of agitation, that young people do things they wouldn't do on any other day. And while the community was in uproar about what they saw on the TV about Moomba and other things, is is that kid on a different day is a different person. 
And the person that community wants that kid to be is the, is the kid, you know, on the good day, not the bad day. So we spent a lot of time trying to think through now that we've caught these kids, what do we do with them? So we actually spent a lot of time working with them, them, the children's court to find solutions to, and we fast-tracked them. They under, you know, because for all young people, the, the longer you leave it between the time that you've done something and the time that you've held accountable, it, it makes no sense. So if you wait six months and then let them walk around the community and then go, okay, you're going into youth detention for three months, the, the relationship between the behaviour that they did in their psyche and what you're doing to them now, it, doesn't make, it just doesn't make sense because it's too far away. It just feels like um, communities being vindictive and reinforces those stereotypes about all, you know, all cops are bad, uh, all old people, you know, over 20 don't know what they're talking about. They're, you know, it's their generation, what do they know? And, and there's no opportunities for us and they're keeping us out of what they're doing. And um, so it just it reinforces the negativeness in their, in their psyche. So we worked a lot to try and deal with those kids. What we found... Um, and I was probably attuned to it coming from a family of eight. What we found with these, with the young kids coming from new communities in the western and the northern suburbs is they came from big families. And so when we went to visit, you know, parents, and often it was a single mum, and, that, you know, as I've described, you know, you can be successful coming from a family with one parent, um, you know, with a whole bunch of kids in the house. So it is possible to be successful um, but what we found, the influence, they were influencing the next siblings down. So we've got a lot of police who work in proactive policing at that stage and they still do wonderful jobs now, work with youth, you know, work with YMCAs, all sorts of different people to help out kids. So these kids hadn't come up on the, on the, on the uh, visibility of anybody yet, but we, we, we decided that they were high risk and they were high risk because they're, you know, Older brother was about to go to into Parkville for Moomba Riot or Apex Gang um, robbery or something, and these kids were following them around. So we started to think through how we could work with the whole family and support the parent or the parents and support all the other kids and help keep the kids in school and do all those sort of things. So we, so we unpacked and broadened it right out from a policing point of view is to move into things that we'd never moved into before and start to join people around a table around what, you know, what could we do to actually support this family? Um, we'll, we'll deal with the kid who's done the wrong thing and we'll work with, you know, with uh, youth corrections and hopefully that kid will get through their sentence if that's what they're going to do or get them through the children's court and get an outcome, a disposition, and then they can work on what they're doing. But at the same time, we need to work on the other kids because they were just following them around and they were mm. the next ones in. Mm. And, that, and we saw that in a lot of places over the years. I've seen that. Is, you know, the, and we saw that at Collingwood, and you talk about when I was a constable at Collingwood. The younger brothers are the bigger brothers. You know, where's your brother? He's in jail. What are you doing? What are you, why are you out in the middle of the night stealing from you know, factories? Mm. Mm. Well, it's a learned behaviour or it's, or it's a respected behaviour within that family. So you, you can't unpick that, but what you can do is do your best. So we turned it on its head and tried to think about what else we could do. Um, so we, did, we, we had a lot of thinking like that. We had um, Graham Ashton was the Chief Commissioner at the time and, and while I had a, had a fair bit to do, he, he, he sort of gave me the job as youth portfolio for the state, which was great. Um, some, you know, you always give someone busy some more work to do. <laughs> <laughs> so we ran, um, so we ran, we call them Chief Commissioner's Summit. So we ran two 
post Moomba, and um, one was I think it was sixteen and seventeen, or seven, I think seventeen and eighteen. Try and think. I think it might have been seventeen and eighteen, twenty seventeen and eighteen. The first one we got a whole, we got a whole, a lot of people. We used uh, uh, a big room at the MCG. We had about one hundred and twenty people in the room. I was there. You were there. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but we wanted to do it. I don't know if you, hopefully, I'll t- I'll will say what I was trying to do and see if you. You're on now. I was there. <laughs> you better get this right. <laughs> so, so we didn't want to go in there and tell young people what they what we should do for them. So we actually had a forum of young people before we went in. Facilitator came in, um, and we got we got them together. And the idea was we'd get them in the room and tell us their story. But at the end of it, that is, we we decided that they were. It wasn't good for them to sit in a room full of grey-haired middle-aged people or do-gooders or whoever else. So they actually did a did a, a series of videos, um, and it was a presentation. So we we ran the first forum in three phases. The first was was to get for the room to get an understanding from young people what it's like in the current environment for young people from their own words, which was great. We actually ended up with a table of young people managed to get there and some social workers who sat with them. I think there might have been two tables. The next thing was when we understood that, the, the next thing, the next phase of the discussion was what could we do? And being police are very action orientated because, you know, we that's what we do every day. We come to a problem, we solve it, we move on to the next one because there's somebody else with a problem down the street. You can't spend forever on things. So it's a bit of a habit of being action oriented. So the end was what can we actually do? And so get the room, get the people in the room to commit to stuff. So um, I thought it was successful. I'll, I'm about to hear from Mick about whether it was or not. But 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 we we wanted to learn it, for people like me to learn and to see what we could do and listen to young people and ask them and consider what we could do that was different. So mm. you were there, Mick. What did you? Well, I think we I, I, look. Firstly, I think the approach was 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 exactly right. What you said, like. The important thing I think of anything that was having the young people's voices and having their perspective. And I think what was really good about that was that there was a step back in a sense from the police to say, we, as you said in your words, we want to hear from you. We want to understand. And then we want to create the solutions. My take on things like that is it's so hard to do something like that in whatever period of time we had that day, yeah? But the step and what you can say and what you can show and demonstrate is that we take this seriously and we're looking at doing this differently. And I think that message on that day for someone like myself who was coming in there as a, uh, I would say at that stage, as an organizational leader in the space of, of trying to, you know, we were doing all the work at that stage, Stephen. We were already years into it. We were working on the, on the front line with these young people. I don't know if you remember, but I could, there was a lot of people that spoke at that day and from different tables and all that. And you could hear the difference of where their organizations were, but there was a, lot of, there was a little bit of desperation in, 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 in areas because they were felt like they were overwhelmed and um, under-resourced um, as well. So I think in that space, it was really good. It, it was really important. But when you do something like that, it opens the floor to that. And then you have to try and say, well, hang, hang on, we can't fix everything now, but this is the first stage to it. It's what comes after that and how it was seen after that as well. And I remember being to, there was, you, you mentioned there was more, there was more than there one. There was two. Yeah, yeah there was two. two. And there was one more with employment. Mm-hmm. And I was at that one as well, because that's the field that we were in. Um, the key thing in that one was, 
on that day, if I was what I reflected on was it was again a great step. The only issue on that day was they needed to have loads more employers in that room. And they needed to be speaking and hearing because that's who we needed to get the, the cro across it. But the videos you did were really good. The young people's was really good and very impressive because it's a very hard thing to do to get young people to speak as well. And I just thought it was a really great place where it brought everyone together. And uh, we all know each other, but we also met each other, new people. But I think what was really important was the messages that was coming, coming from that was we're stepping back and we're listening. I think more of that needs to happen. I don't think it consistently continues to happen. So. From there, we had two summits. Where does it go from there? Where it splinters out into other groups or we continue to have these kind of summits um, at a bigger level or we actually reduce them small into community levels. That's my take on it. Yeah, it's fair. But I thought at the time, it was really, really um, important what you did. Stick with us. We'll be back after this short ad. Mash. Mick, how are ya? Good. What do you want? Mate, I'm calling about those sponsors again. Always the sponsors with you. Always the sponsors. Mate, I still haven't got any sponsors, mate. I've been trying, but nothing. Still nothing. Mate, we still need them. I'm trying, mate. I'm still trying. All right. Look, I reckon we're going to have to send you out on the road. Hang on a minute. What do you mean on the road? Nah, leave it with me. I'll sort Mac. it out. Nah, Mac, where am I going? Nah. <laughs> All good. Mac. Leave it with me. Mac, Mac, don't hang up. Where am I going? Mac, bleeding hung up. Yeah. So if I come back to one of your first questions is, is how do you change the community narrative around uh, negativity against young people and youth crime and, and different groups within, you know, different ethnic groups within community and how they're seen? So, Mick, I think, I think you can't, I, you can't, I, as a senior police officer, I, I tried, but I was, I was always very neutral when I did a lot of media interviews. Um, always led with the line that I led with here is that the first job of police is to hold young people to account if they do the wrong thing, and you'll hear senior police too to say that stuff. But you have to work in the background. So while I was neutral, I think what I could do was actually work in the background and make a difference so that we could generate change and actually go to those communities with as many people as we could muster from as broad a cross-section of communities we could so that we could start changing their perspective of what was happening to them. Because if you imagine if you're, um, and I've spoke to some um, South Sudanese single mothers with big families, is that they were beside themselves. They didn't, they didn't feel personally comfortable walking down the street for what people would, how people would look at them. They didn't feel comfortable in the supermarket when they went to buy something. Um, they didn't feel comfortable on public transport um, and they had their kids going to school and, a, you know, the, the older one in trouble, the next one getting, you know, not coming home when they should be, uh, not in police trouble yet or not that we're aware of, and then the younger ones, you know, trying to keep them focused. So how, how do we, what do we do as a community and how do, you know, so it's not a... So, that, so these are not policing, strict policing problems. These are not in the 5% of rules and powers and other things. These are in the 95% about community. So from a policing perspective, we took, the, we took the perspective is that we could actually change the narrative in the long term as long as we took enough people along to do enough things and, to, and engage enough people to try and listen and understand what the real problems were. So we flipped our approach to 
understanding that it's not just policed and can do can fix it. So it's not we can't police our way out of this problem. You know, it's um, there's other problems police can't police their way out of either. They're complex community issues. Um, and then, but we actively, from a senior leadership point of view, and pushed it right through, is we needed to work collaboratively with as many people as we could. So if you, uh, I don't know if people recall, but we had a bad summer with um, African gangs again. I think, they, you know, they were down the beach, Port Phillip, um, all sorts of drama. And what it happened, I think it was 20, I'm trying to think of the, the years, it might have been 2017 going to 2018, so that Christmas going into New Year that year. Um, there was all sorts of drama about what we could do. But what, what we had was um, we'd got to the point with a lot of young people, we'd got with, they were in school, they were connected, and they had a summer holiday period and they'd got a bit wayward. And I think that's about all it was. You know, we had a hot summer. The kids had worked out how to catch the tram, the train and the tram all the way down to St Kilda and they were having a great time. Um, trouble was, it turns out there was hundreds of them and then yeah, they got yeah. lined up. Yeah. You know, but they, well, they just wanted to go to the beach and have a good time. Their, their principal position when they started wasn't to go and cause trouble. They would they want to go to the beach like every other Melbourne, Melbourneian and go and, you know, uh, go and have a good time, like enjoy Melbourne. That's mm. what they've come to this. Their family brought them to this country so they could have that freedom to do those things. So they start, they started there. It didn't quite end up where it needed to be, but, you know, that, that, that happens in the world, but, you, you know. We'll sort it out. So we so we've jumped it a little bit. We jumped forward a little bit of that um, and took some actions there. We worked out where the high risk schools were across across Melbourne, and we pushed in and actually set up. Decided that we'd help the principals of those schools because you know some of those summits we talked to school principals about what they could do, and that was still it was still in the back of my mind, and we hadn't solved it. So we we found about sixteen to twenty schools. And we actually, because, you know, I was invited to a meeting with the acting premier of the day, I think, and a whole bunch of other cabinet ministers, and they were all going around the room trying to think, what are we going to do, what are we going to do, and what are you going to do, Stephen? Well, it's up to me now, okay. How about? <laughs> <laughs> and and, that, and it, going back to your point, Mick, about how do you bring it together, so there's an old saying about it, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Really, Melbourne's a huge metrop- you know, metropolis, you know, four million people, it's four and a half million people, whatever it is. Victoria, six million people. It's not a country town, so it stops. It stops acting like a country town. So in a country town, the school principal knows the kids, knows the footy coach, knows the soccer coach, the netball coach. You know, um, they see the kids down the street. They know they're their kids because they know every kid in the school. And there's, that, there's everybody in the town goes to school somewhere. Um, so all those sort of things. So it, things become really disconnected in a metropolis. And and they get and and people who listen to this, particularly youth workers and others, know the disconnect between young people and community. But there's also a disconnect at the at the people who want to solve it. So there's a disconnect between the Department of Education. There's a disconnect between Victoria Police. There's a disconnect between you know Department of Health and Human Services as it was then. There's a disconnect between the Children's Court and what they're doing. There's a disconnect between Youth Corrections. There's a disconnect between the Department responsible for employment. Um, you know, there's all these things. There's a disconnect. So we we actually forced all those government departments under the leadership of one of the secretaries of one of the departments to actually start working together. Um, for a for a period of time, we did it. We we did a sprint for three months, and our objective was to get the kids back into school. 
And there's three three critical things for young people that they need in their lives. You know, the lesson from Stephen uh, over this time is you need to be in school training or some some sort of employment. Um, so a combination of those, so school and a part-time job, uh, you know, a, a job with an apprenticeship where you go to school or you're in full-time employment. But all everybody in the world, even retired people, you know, 40-year veteran cops need to be busy, otherwise I'll get myself into trouble. We all need to be doing something because we need to be engaged. And it, need, and it needs to be meaningful. It needs to lead somewhere, you know, not some, you know, some basket-weaving course. You need to do a course at TAFE that's going to lead you to the next skill that's going to lead you to the next skill that gets you the job and the job that you want to do. So we need to do that. The other thing you need to do is you need to be involved in community somewhere, uh, and a lot of the work YMCA does is about, when you think about, you know, gymnasiums and stuff, it's about you do a physical activity or a music activity or a dance activity, but you do it with other people who are doing it the same. And we're not forcing people into the room, but you do. The purpose of it is you learn from each other and you also have some senior, you know, some leaders in the room, which whatever state of life they're in, but they're leaders in the room because they're influencers um, and it's about, mo- you know, modifying behaviours because you've got to behave in a certain way when you're in a dance class. You can't, you know, you can do free dance, I suppose, but if you're doing hip-hop and you want to do a particular dance and you want to do it as a group, then you've got to comply with the group, otherwise it's not a good dance. If you want to play music, you've got to play the same music, mm. otherwise, mm. And, that's, and, and that's a discipline that, you know, we don't tell young people you're doing this because you're learning discipline. It's it's a discipline we learn as a community, and it follows out. So you, so if you're not so for young people, they have to be engaged in something like that. And the third thing they have to do is they have to have somebody in their life that they don't want to disappoint, that doesn't want to see them, and go, and they straighten up. So you know, I often you know, for listeners who are a bit older, think about when they see a police car when they drive down the street. The first thing they do is check their speed and make sure they're not speeding. If they've had a few drinks and they're out at night, the first thing they do is straighten up, try and look as sober as they can, and walk. And that's that, you know, that's a that's a way to describe about human behaviour. When you see somebody that you think, oh my God, I better be in my best behaviour here, I'll do it. So if we jump to another one, if we've, as we grew up around this table of some of the listeners, if there was a like, you know, my my cousin who used to handcuff me to the to the ironing board, like there was nothing I would want to do in my life that disappoint him. Yeah. Um, and so so you got to have somebody in your life you don't want to disappoint. And you've got to have, a, you know, an, a, in a village you have a number of people that you don't want to disappoint. And for the young people that were running at those times, and they, they, they got lost, you know, they weren't going home. The only ones that they didn't want to disappoint was their, you know, the gang leader or the, or the group leader they were with. So we had to break that cycle. So we decided, you know, long story short, get back to it. We changed the way we did things from a government point of view by actually forcing these government um, senior officials to stop working in their um, silo. Yeah. yeah. And to stop, they were delivered, you know, because they, you know, they said to me, oh, we're delivering all these programs and we don't have time to do this other stuff and we don't have the budget for this. And I said, yes, you do. They do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you do. No, we don't. Yeah, you do. He said, you're, you're really senior. You can do it. Yeah. You say, what about police? How you can do this? Say, oh, I get to do it now. I'm the assistant commissioner. I can just say, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna, as long as we do most of it, I've got a little bit of discretion. I can just say, we're going to do it different. 
yeah. and get my people to do it different, you know. And we and we worked through the principles because some of the principles, some of the simple things they had was the kids didn't have uniforms and they couldn't come to certain schools without the right uniform. Mm. So they weren't going to come back to school. No. Yeah. So, so so often the really complex things are often really simple, like, you know, oh, this, this kid, we can't get this kid back into school and if we don't get him to school... He hadn't got a uniform. So we had the right people around the room. We'd turn to them in this big meeting and go, how do we get this kid a uniform? Oh, oh, you know. Yeah. And senior government official goes, oh, we've got a fund. Good. Can you make that happen? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Action item, you'll do that. Move on. Next. Yeah. You know, yeah. move on. So so there's lots of ways to solve things, I think. I think we overcomplicate. We, I think we over-engineer the solution sometimes without thinking about what the problem was. Um, I'm going to give you the simplest example of when policing solve a problem. We had a McDonald's store. Um, no offence to McDonald's, it's not anything about it, But they kept, you know, they re- they complain early on about youth hanging around, doing this, doing that. They, they wouldn't buy stuff. They'd just be around and they'd put off customers. And it was out in the western suburbs. So one of my um, inspectors who was in working with me, is a great community engagement person, went out there and had a look and he stood there and talked to the manager for 20 minutes about his problem. And then he said to the manager, he said, did you know you've got no um, African-Australians working for you? And he goes, oh, yeah. And I go, so he, so he actually worked with him and worked with local youth leaders and promoted, because the kids didn't want to work there because they didn't know how, they, they, didn't, they didn't think they'd get a job because they didn't see anybody like them behind the jump, you know, serving burgers and chips. So, so the African kids who'd come in had no respect because they're, they didn't see anybody behind the counter who worked, you know. They, they didn't think that if they behave, they may get a job there too one day or that that's my friend's sister or my friend's cousin or, you know, or I know that, you know, my auntie knows that girl or that boy. So we actually had to spend a lot of time with them trying to find kids that they could do to work in McDonald's. And then the other thing we did was um, people, you know, McDonald's has free Wi-Fi. So this this is, you know, for kids who don't have you know, um, phone plans, that they've got a phone, um, free Wi-Fi is really cool, you know, like, so when it, so the local, one of the local cops really simple went, you know, went back one day and said, when it really gets, starts to get out of of control, can you just turn off your Wi-Fi and tell them the Wi-Fi's out? (laughs) And so they just used to shut the Wi-Fi down. The kids used to go, oh, okay. And then the crowd would disperse and they'd slow down and everything would calm. And then about an hour later, they turn the Wi-Fi back on. And hit him, all right. Hit him with the phones. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so do we want to send twelve police cars and OC spray or all this sort of stuff, or what if you just turn the Wi-Fi off just before it starts to build up, and then it'll they'll solve it themselves yeah. and wander off and do something because it's not what are you going to do hanging around when you can't yeah. check things on your phone? Yeah. I think it's a really good point that you brought up with the different departments not communicating with each other previously. Because I can see that if they're not if they're not communicating with each other and they're running their own course, you're going to have you know one department disciplining a young person, and then another department also disciplining. People aren't communicating with each other, and it's not spread out. Um, you can see the disengagement with services. Yeah, I, I think, and I think because the life of the government's so complex, mm. is that you know you can waste effort and time too, um, and money. Mm. Uh, by by doing really legitimate things that are really worthwhile, mm. uh, but for that for that moment or that week, it needed to be something else. Yeah, 
Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. And that's that. And, and you know, complex – and the most complex young people often have, you know, multidiscipline team support. Yep. Yeah. You know, if, if you think about the really complex kids in Parkville, um, there, there's, there's lots of different agencies that will come together to help them and develop a plan and do all sorts of things. But for the other kids who are just kids who just need help, um, they don't get that support. Mm. And so we we probably tried to just put together the multidiscipline team that that listen and but we did it through the lens of school because education was really important and and we gave it a go. What if we get these kids back in school and engaged? Will that solve our problem? And pretty much everybody said, well, it, it'll go a long way to it because at least if they start presenting with issues, the principal's got a chance to see them mm. and understand what they're doing, uh, and then we can intervene. So. So you know, it's I think I think it's still running. It's still running in a fashion, um, but you know, we had to play with all sorts of deal with all sorts of issues around privacy and sharing information. And um, but it was a bit I don't know. If people, there's a kids game when I was a kid, a, a card game called Go Fish. Yep. It yeah. was when you've got a card the same, you say Go Fish. It was we put the operational people together from all the different agencies and the schools, and you know, privacy said they couldn't actually exchange information, but they, they each knew who the kids were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was it was like a game of go fish. Yeah. And I had very senior bureaucrats that, you know, in government going, oh, yeah, but we have to get privacy this and privacy that. And by the time they'd walked in the door, they knew, you know, they'd seen each other at different things. They'd yeah. seen each other outside court. They knew exactly which kids they were dealing with. Um, and so we had to work through some how we break down some of the barriers of sharing information so that we could help these kids. So. I think it's a. I think a lot of what are, the work that you, you're talking about in the in the Western suburbs, the African communities, and, and going back even to the summits and all that. Like a lot of the stuff for me always comes comes back to, and the, and the same for us the work that we do. If you look at it from a co-design lens, where you're you know actually asking other people questions and how you can you know make change, but for the young people as well, they just need to see. I suppose consistency follow-up action and then that builds the trust because you, you know going back to what you, you were even saying mark about you know um, authority and and you know you know there a lot of young people we, we we work with are used to disappointing people made or made to feel that they've disappointed people um but i think as well that puts up the guard but i think that for me is, is how we, everything works in an approach is if if there's an action if there's a follow-on if the young people can see more than just that initial point because they they all everyone gets an initial point whether you're meeting with a police officer whether you're meeting with us as a as a you know um support um organization trying to get you to employment you know their first thing is what you're going to get me a job hell you're not going to get me a job probably in their mind is probably you're not going to get me a job and we're like well hang on let's not talk about the job let's talk first of all about the pathway through you know and then finally they get the job and then that changes and then it changes for that. And then they become the advocates for us. So going back to that summit as well, you talk, for us, what was good there is the voice is of the young people. We can talk all day about the work we do. But when we put a young person up who can actually articulate that to either an employer or to uh, you know a room full of CEOs or whatever it is, it cuts straight through. Because it's lived experience, but it's also trusted experience. It, they did it for me you can feel it come out of them, talk about it. And that, I think, breaks down a lot quicker. 
um, than myself and Mark and maybe you, Stephen, that go around the room because they all. So many, how many times have you spoken at things? How many times have we've spoken? We spoke at things, and I always say sometimes you just need to get that cut through, which is why things like the summer and things like that engagement and bringing the community and having young people that are you know um, advocates in there and strong leaders in there coming up makes a massive, massive difference. Goes back to your McDonald's point, goes back to being able to talk to, you know, engaging elders and people like that who can actually then walk with the families as well and educate you as well. So I think it's a really important point. I wanted to chat to you a little bit about what we have here um, for a little bit longer, just um, just in regards to policing itself. Like you have done an incredible job over the 40 years. You've worked with lots of teams, lots of people, lots of police under lots of circumstances. Like if you look back at some of the big incidents that you've been in, like you would have been involved, I think it was 2017, you would have been involved in the Bourke Street tragedy. Now, what I always think with police as well, people see one side of, of policing, which is, you know, the authority side, the reaction side, and you need to do your job. But there's also this other side where you have to walk through what you are dealing with and how you're walking through situations. And that, to me, is fascinating. Um, When something like that happens and you're dealing with that, I know you did a lot of great work after about what we do, but in them moments when something like that happens or anything else like that, how do you train or how are you trained to be able to walk under that severe heightened kind of pressure, if it is there, under a situation that's, you know, has all the eyes on it and is volatile and tragedy all in, involved in it. Is it really, are, you, is, are the police today really trained to be able to handle that in a calm situation on the outside, but inside it's, it's, it's hard to keep in track? I'm just, I'm just fascinated by how you approach things like that and how police and teams approach stuff like that and are able to walk through it calmly, if they can, um, to, a, to a, a positive outcome, if they can, within, within something that's so tragic or so challenging? Um, I've probably reflected on it more over the last couple of years since I left the police, I think. Um, right. And, and some of the things I've thought about in the first year after I finished um, about, I think it probably took me 12 months to recover from 40 years of policing. And, I've, and I'm, to be honest, and I've said this to a, a lot of police groups um, before I left and after, I think, when I talk to people, is... Um, there's no doubt 40 years, I'm a different person and I'm affected by what's happened in 40 years of policing. So there's certain things that I um, affected me. And I, and I noticed um, I, was, I was less, uh, no, not less, I became more sympathetic to things that I saw in the first 12 months after leaving policing than I was when I was in it. So when I see a sad story on the news about some poor family that's lost their mother or in probably probably to survive in policing you put you just put that out of your mind you say that's that's a that's a matter for somebody else to to worry about that's not my job at the moment I've got to be stoic and you know have a bit and put on the professional face and move forward so I think um uh, there's a little bit of me that's probably not as empathetic and as sympathetic as I probably would like to think I would be and I've learned that difference in the last couple of years because there's some things now that I think, oh, like that wouldn't have affected, I wouldn't have thought that way yeah. two years ago because my mindset was police, you know, every day I get up, go to be a police officer and survive. Um, I, I don't know if there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of work in policing to try and get people ready when they come through the academy and they get them, you know, part of surviving through the recruitment and the, the academy pieces, they put them in high stress 
situations, see how they go. Uh, there's a lot of support for them. Peer, peer support is really, really huge as far as their own peers as, as a network and a supported network to go and talk to people, a lot of psychologists, a lot of um, mental health support, mental health training. So there's a lot of investment in the modern policing, which is good, I think, right across the country, not just in Victoria. That's really good. Uh, for policing, I think you have to be suited for it too. I've talked to a lot of young police that were really troubled by it. And I would often have a conversation about, do you think you're just suited to it? Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. do you think you'd be happier if you just went and did something else? Yeah. Because, uh, and some of them particularly had been maybe 10 or 15 years, um, couldn't, under, couldn't imagine what else they would do. And I sort of had a conversation about, but what you're doing might be killing you, you know, like, you know, in the long term, it's you know you end up with you end up with health impacts from mental health issues, you know, not just the mental health, but you end up in physical health issues mm. if mm. you persist and you're not happy at home and you're not happy. So the first thing in life you should be happy, and if you're not happy doing it, you should go and do something else. So I used to counsel a lot of young police and older police too. It's about time to go. Um, and when I retired, compared to some of my colleagues, I left early. Some of my assistant commissioner colleagues had done more time than me, and are still rolling around, you know, and they said, what are you leaving for? I said, well, 40 years is probably enough. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you made that decision yourself? You didn't have someone tap you on the shoulder and say? No, 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 <laughs> I did. Oh, you know, they, people were surprised I went. Okay, yeah. Um, I wanted to go and do something else. I went mm. straight into school and I was going to try and work out what I did when I what I'm going to do when I grow up. So yeah. I'm still trying to work that out. <laughs> <laughs> you're on podcast, mate. You're doing yeah. podcasts now. So, you know, you're all good. And you're trying to solve these massive crimes about garden gnomes yeah. that are going. So yeah, yeah. Side, side gig you've got going there. Yeah, so yeah. I can so, give you some insights on who that is too. Um, yeah. But, so, yeah. So, yeah, so there's a lot of there's a lot of things to unpack around that, I think. Uh, Stoicism is really important for police and you see that when you see that professional face. And I think, the you know, I get a chance to watch the news much more than I do. If you remember that, that really awful issue with the balloon accident, you know, the jumpy castle from yeah, Tassie yeah. and that. And the two policewomen from um, Tassie, you know, giving each other a, a hug, yeah. you know, like uh, it does It does happen. You, you don't see it, yeah. but it is needed too, you know. And police are just people. Uh, things will affect will affect them. And I remember you talk about Burke Street. I mean, I, I did... I was the command, you know, state commander controller for Burke Street after straight after it happened. I think I did a twelve-hour shift or something in the control room. But if I, I'm happy to be honest here with the world, is that it, about forty-five minutes or maybe ninety minutes in. So you can imagine a big police control room. You know, there's all sorts of people. There's chief commissioners and premiers and all sorts of people asking questions coming through, and you're in, you're trying to be in charge, and you get everything set up. And at one stage, I actually just stopped. I physically forced myself to stop and stand still and breathe for two minutes. Mm. Yeah. Just to re- just to get myself and get my head right. And it, and it was all happening around me. Well, I got everything moving and everything was happening, you know, the, all the resources were coming and the national, the, the state responses and then requests from national how they could help and because, you know, ambulance was here and everything else was running. But... Um, to cope, I suppose you ask, how do you cope? Well, I've, I got to the point where I learnt to actually occasionally you just have to stop and I stopped and breathed, you know, took two minutes to myself, had a breath and physically focused on lowering my pulse rate Yeah, because it, it was rushing. 
And so, so while the face was, you know, it's like the duck, you know. Yeah. Uh, while the face and everything was happening, I, I, I don't know what my pulse rate was, but I'm sure it was over 100. Mm, yeah. And so I just thought I'd just lower the pulse rate. So that's, that's an example of me. But I think for all police it's about, if I can use that term, is they, they've got to find ways in which they can lower their pulse rate mm. to cope. And if you can't, then you can't survive because it, it, it does get really tough. I, I, it's amazing. Thank you for sharing the, the, the insight as well because the reason why I ask is I, I generally look at, you know, tragedies and, you know, you look at the news and you look at all that. And I, I felt the same with the Bounce Castle, the police. I looked at that and go, I just think people don't see it sometimes. They don't understand that they're the first responders sometimes to absolutely stuff like and, and they're human beings yeah. mm. they're parents they're sons and daughters you know they're brothers and sisters and they have to see and and not just see but they have to walk in it they don't get a chance to walk towards something and, and step back you know it, most of the time they walk into something and have to continue walking in so I just think it, it's some people you know that gets missed sometimes I don't think it all not not a lot I think people generally see the great walk but I just think sometimes it gets a little bit missed because I, I think it's that's one part of what I look at now and go God that that would be how how do you continually show up the day the week after or whatever and continue to be able to put that in and how do you separate from it and what does it do to you as a person mm. you know in your home life in in, in everything else because I'm sure it has it has an effect and obviously there's resources around it to support and counselling and all that as well but it's um it's it's an honourable thing to do and it's something that I think people you know really you know need to take a step back ourselves sometimes and take two minutes to understand what police do on a daily basis and other emergency services of course but what your police force do on a daily basis to to help people in very bad positions hmm. yeah so um before we finish with we is Stephen um Solutions like what? what do, like your time as a reflecting, like forty years you've done, and you've been across a lot of different areas. We've and you've talked a bit about it today, but how you engage your communities as well. Like, where do you see the the opportunities? And I mean opportunities because there's lots of problems. We don't talk about problems and solutions. Where do you see the opportunities going forward for the you know police force and 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 working with youth in particular? Where do you see some really good opportunities, or maybe some areas that we some things, maybe some gaps that that are missing? I. I well, on reflection, I think for me, the opportunities are is, is that police can't do it by themselves and there's still some that feel like that they're the youth, you know, police officer and they'll have their group of kids playing basketball and do other things. I think I think police still need to do that, but I think what we've probably demonstrated with the crew that I managed to work with over the last couple, you know, the years before I retired is that one of the things police do really well is rally support around an issue and they're really good at leadership. And they're probably good, are really probably good at uh, nudging or pushing um, some people who probably been, need to be nudged and pushed. And they're also really good at opening doors. You know, you talk about employment, and you know, like uh, you know, inspector police can go and talk to the manager at McDonald's and say, "Oh, you know, do you know," but the youth worker can't do that. They can, but they ask probably ask if they want fries with it or something because. So police get away with a lot of stuff. They don't. They under. I think they underestimate what they can do, and what they can do is really influence others to get involved, and I think and be leaders and think through things and challenge 
uh, you know, someone like me comes on this and I talk to other things. If I talk in a different way, it really challenges. It really can. I can challenge people's thinking. It might it won't challenge young people's thinking, and for your youth workers who might tune in, it might not challenge theirs. But I can challenge the secretary of a department. I can challenge the mayor. I can challenge the CEO of the council. You know, I can you know, senior police and you know, you know, articulate police officers can challenge thinking. So I think the future of policing for me um if you know as they're heading towards that and uh, the legacy hopefully i've left some of it behind it continues is do the doing of policing but also not but also understand how you can bring other people together to solve a problem you know the idea of having the chief commissioner having a summit on youth like why on earth would you do that why would the you're responsible for locking them up why would you have a summit you know like why would the cops do that yeah yeah it's because the chief commissioner is a really important person. If he declares he's going to have a summit, people turn up. Yeah, yeah. And um, it would be crazy if I didn't ask this question. Um, and I know you got asked lots of tough questions in your life by lots of people as well, but is there a future for blue light discos? I think there is. <laughs> but I don't think it's for young people. <laughs> there's, there's a blue river, there's a blue light. Was it the Blue Light Foundation actually run, do a whole lot of youth work now? They do. Camps. They do, yeah. But their biggest fundraiser outside COVID, when it can have it happen, is a Blue Light disco where people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, <laughs> <laughs> instead of a ball, they have a Blue Light disco and it gets sold out. There's your gig. Yeah. There's your gig, Stephen. Yeah, <laughs> they could, um, no, they do it. It's a really it's a really successful event. If you get a chance to publish it, if it gets back on this year, I might send you a note. You can, yeah. you can promote it. But. It gets sold out, so so the, the, and they call it the blue light disco. So everybody, you know, <laughs> that's crazy. Never ever went to one. Yeah, that's such a crazy question. Yeah, We're in the revival. Up, so um, and it's a good way. So yeah, people out there, Google the blue. And it's a blue light foundation. I think they call themselves. Now I should know. I apologise to the organisers. Yeah, no, no, we did, we actually did some work with the YMCA with them. I think um, uh, around that, like way back years ago, uh, in new service as well. It's just funny. I just always hear when I came. Like obviously, I'm not from Australia, but when you know, blue light discos is is everyone knows blue light discos. Yeah, yeah. It's a historical thing. I always had a, found a very humorous when people would talk about them. You know, and yeah. um, the police run the disco. I don't think it would have went well in Ireland, but you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. But um, last question: Ask a Dave when it comes on. When you were younger, a uh, young kid or whatever, growing up, um, what did you want to be? Uh, I really wanted to be a lawyer. I think. I like to argue about things and I like language and articulation. Hopefully the outcome of the podcast, hope people agree that I <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I and from a CV, you see, I actually did I did my law degree my a mature age student in my thirties. I think I finished when I was forty. And then could have gone into a and I did I've done a lot of legal stuff. I've I've been admitted to practice but I haven't got a practicing certificate. So I ended up just staying in cops and I did I did legal things in the background, legal policy and government policy, but I think I wanted to be a lawyer. So I managed to be a police prosecutor, so I, that was good fun. Um, and I don't know, maybe, you know, who knows, one day I might be, uh, might retire down the bush somewhere and there'll be a little lawyer's practice somewhere that wants an old cop who's a lawyer to come in and represent kids at the magistrate's court or the, you know, the DUI or something on a yeah. Yeah, yeah. one day a week. You never know. But yeah. um, but that's what I wanted to be. And then so, yeah, ended up being a cop. But, yeah, who knows from here where I go. I'm, you know, as we talked about, I'm trying to – we're trying to sort out the issues with the triple zero service in Victoria. So uh, we'll get that back in track and then hopefully later this year I can leave that behind and go and do something else. Big challenge, that. 
That's huge. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. A lot of same deal. They're just like cops, you know. There's police, fire, and ambulance, but the call takers and dispatchers, you know, they, people ring up in all sorts of trauma. They're just wonderful. They're doing a wonderful job. Incredible job, and that's been that's one of the things where you see TV shows it like send a picture of one part of of stuff, and you go, "Oh, that's not really that realistic, is it? Really like that?" One of the things that 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 emergency services, even I know it's not, I know if it's in Australia, if it's in England as well, but when you get to listen to them calls. And you get to listen how that how and I remember seeing people on the first day of work or whatever, and they get these calls and how they walk through it to support the person on the other end mm. of the line who they can't have any eye contact with, they can't have any you know human contact with. It's just talking them out of uh, you know some talking them through something that's tragic, like like that's really challenging for them in that moment. Mm. It's in, it's incredible that service. Yeah, yeah, and so I mean, they, you know, the ambulance call takers. At first, my first day, I went in as the interim CEO, and I was standing at the back of the control room, and a and a woman was on the phone. One of the operators, call takers, was on the phone, and I just stood there for a minute, thinking oh, I should wander around and say hello to people. And I could hear her say, "Now, can you reach down between your legs and can you feel the baby's head?" <laughs> and I thought, "Oh my God." Morning. Yeah, morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's an average Just doing a day. coffee run. It's an average day. Uh, yeah, they deliver babies and uh, and describe how to do um, CPR. That's incredible. Yeah, they, they save That's lives crazy. over the phone. So talking to young kids to train yeah. them through CPR. Yeah. Talking yeah. to people who've you know their parents collapse. Oh, it, it's it. Yeah, nothing but respect. Uh. Yeah, so we'll work through. So yeah, I'll, I'll finish there. We're working through the service, but the service issues is not about the people who work there. It's about people like me now trying to make sure we get as much resource to them as we can. And as you probably heard, I, I'm not backwards and coming forward. So no, having a bit of a chat to government about what they can do in there. What's your it, time? What's your time frames? And where do you think you're looking at, like to be able to get it to where you you feel is the you know where it should be. Uh, we'll work away. I, uh, we're not far. We're not far away. We're probably three months. I think we'll yeah. be able to get our head above the water. But it's, it's a two-year recovery process to get enough resources in there. So I'm talking to government. Invest a lot more. And oh yeah. Pretty sure they'll do it. We'll see how the po- hopefully the podcast comes out. Ah, we'll give them a nudge. We'll, we'll give them a nudge for you. Yeah. That's all right, Steve. We know a few people in government. We'll give them a nudge for you. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen. Awesome. Thank you so much um, for today. It's been. So interesting and educational to speak to you. You, you. I know we've gone around a, a lot of different topics as well, but um, just brilliant. Thank you for coming in and sharing that with us. And uh, and you know what? Thank you for the forty years that you've given to Victoria and you know and Melbourne in particular um, for your services because it's not you know you might say you know you, you sit there and you speak articulately about it and all that and you you know you're obviously doing great things now and all that, but. It had to be challenging. You've had to see stuff and, and being through stuff and, and not so stressful situations as well. So um, just want to say massive thank you for everything that you've given and what you're continuing to do as well for us um, as well, Stephen. And it's uh, been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Yeah, no, thanks. No, it's, it's been a privilege to, to do what I do and it's been a privilege to talk to you two today. It's been great. All right, well, thanks, mate. Thanks a lot. If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you or someone you know, head over to our website for a full list of services that may help at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab. This podcast was produced by Mick Cronin and Mark Wilson. Editing done by Mark Wilson.